today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Podcast. On today's show, lock up your Christmas balls. Who stole the Christmas balls from Gore Park? An investigation has been launched. Also, Canadians detained in China are in conditions considered torturous, while the Huawei CFO enjoys her mansion on bail while awaiting trial. Is that fair? And airport services. Christmas brought to a standstill in the UK because of drones. It's all coming up on today's show. Thanks for listening. We were down at uh, Gore Park, obviously, for the lighting of the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope. And uh, amazing, just absolutely beautiful what they've done with, uh, with Gore Park and, and, and just the development over the years. And then turning it on for the holidays, it just looks absolutely incredible. Uh, including a display, which you might have seen if you're down there, of Christmas balls. And there are three giant Christmas balls all kind of stuck together. Well, you know what happens when you put something out in the middle of a Hamilton Park. Sometimes it gets uh, altered. Let's bring in Susie Ozer, Operations Manager, Hamilton Downtown BIA, is with us now. Susie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, for sure. No problem. Thanks for what, having me. What's going on with the Christmas balls? <laughs> they have had a little bit of a saga in their short history now, so far. <laughs> so tell us, by, by the way, the balls are beautiful. Thank you. They look great. I saw them when we were down there. But uh, so uh, d- describe to people who've never seen them yet or haven't been down there and should be getting down there what, what exactly this is and, and what it's all about. So they were a Christmas display. We were looking to add something to what we already have in Gore Park that would be kind of like a photo op that didn't have to be lit. We have lots of stuff that comes on in the evening, but we wanted something people could enjoy through the day. So this was a is a um, ornament stack of about four different life-size ornaments. Um, they're all together. They're probably uh, close to five feet tall, it was, when they were all assembled. Um, and they were, yeah, they were basically just a bright, sparkly Christmas ornament that were also serving as a photo op in the park. Um, they unfortunately did not uh, last as long as we would have hoped this season. Um, they went in on November 14th, I believe, they right. got put in down there. And then, unfortunately, the next morning, one of the our red ball had gone missing already. Um, we were able to locate that one, though. Thankfully, someone was kind enough to let us know on Facebook that they saw it at the uh, Tim Hortons at John and Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm stealing the Christmas ball. It's fun to roll it down the street, but uh, I got to go to Timmy's. Yeah, I'm going to leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> That's too funny. So we got that back. We brought it back. So it went away to get fixed and be made a little bit more secure. Um, in hopes that then it could come back and be all good to go. So it did come back. Everything was good. All four were there for a while. And then just this past weekend, actually, we've lost the green one. We have no way of knowing uh, when it went missing. It could have been one day on the weekend. could have been Monday night. Uh, We're not sure because we didn't notice until Tuesday evening that it was gone. So... Unfortunately, they are gone again until and they won't be coming back this year, but we'll be figuring out something to have them back because a lot of people, we had great feedback on them, lots of people stopping to take pictures with them. Um, they were lovely, so we, they will be back, just a matter of figuring out how to... How to lock up the balls. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so there, there's four total, correct? Four total, yep. And, and how big is each one? I would probably say about two feet. Yeah, a couple feet, couple yeah. feet in diameter. Yeah. yeah, and they're sort of stacked up, like um, all piled up on top of each other, yeah. together in a thing, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, um, how? Uh, any idea how, how this is happening? Like, what? Like they they look pretty large to be uh, moving around. Um, how are they secured? Are they? So <laughs> there's a big chain around them. Yeah, honestly. Um, so we did. We added that in the beginning, just on the inside, some chain to them. Yeah. Um, because we obviously we know we've been activating the park for years. We know if we want something, just as in any downtown, really, it's not just yeah, a yeah, yeah. downtown Hamilton problem, but um, that things need to be made secure. So um, I'm not a hundred percent on the matrix of how it works inside it's really just 
Um, it wasn't super secure in the beginning, so that's why yeah. it went back and came back. But it's, I guess it's a process of trial and error for us, uh, really, at this point. Um, what, what does the company say that, that you got them from about this? Did they, did they realize this was going to be an issue? Um, they're, they've been working with us. Um, they didn't, I don't think they anticipated, no, that we, as us knowing, working in Hamilton, we know the reality of what things might happen uh, down here in downtown when we put something out in the park. Um, I don't think, because they've been in other cities and there hasn't been a problem, uh, or shopping malls and destinations like that, they haven't really encountered the same issues in other cities. But again, this is a downtown core, different problems that you might be facing with things like that. So they do, we, there does need to be a different solution um, when it comes to our situation. So I think that's just kind of the issue where we hit a wall here. So is there surve- uh, surveillance cameras down there? Um, I believe so. Uh, we filed a police report for the second time that this has happened. So our green bullet is now officially missing. Um, we filed a police report for that. Apparently there are cameras that they can take a look at um, that they will be going through, they told me when I filed the report. So hopefully maybe something will come of that. I remember when the Hamilton sign went up at City Hall and talking to the mayor about this. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, are you not concerned that, you know, uh, the H is going to go missing or mm-hmm. it's just the thing's going to be vandalized? You know, I, I remember, you know, the Stony Creek sign out on the QEW. It was a long time before they got that one figured out. Yeah. Um, uh, and and his, his response was, well, go ahead, because there's so much surveillance cameras down at City Hall. Uh, you know, good luck getting away with that, and, and unless you got a bag over your head, I guess. Uh, any hope that that may give us give you some answers to this story? I mean, yeah, for sure. If we, it would be nice to have kind of, I guess, an answer on it. But at the end of the day, it's really not going to stop us from moving forward and continuing to activate. The same with the Hamilton sign, really. Um, it's not going to stop us from adding things to the city. Yeah. Um, it's a great display downtown. So far this year, people have loved the Ferris wheel we added, too. That so. is a huge bonus. That's so cool to see. Uh, it is. Yeah, and, and the lineup for that thing uh, when we lit the tree was huge. It mm-hmm. was great. It, people are loving it. Uh, great view of the city when you're down here. Yeah. Yeah. People can still come. That's up until the 23rd at 8 p.m. People can still come ride that for free. Okay, perfect. Uh, so um, you, you talked about this being a photo op. And, you know, I never thought of that when I saw this. Um, but obviously the world we live in today, and we've certainly seen that with the Hamilton sign, mm-hmm. this is the same sort of thing, isn't it? For sure, yep. That was its whole intention, and it really did work that way. People, We had lots of great comments just from people even around our office how great they looked. And at the tree lighting and even just when I've been walking through the park, there's almost always someone that was in front of them taking a picture. Uh, and, you, you know, when you put something like this up, you're always going to get citizens asking about costs, so I have to. What is the cost? Uh, is more cost now that you've had to alter it a few times? Um, it's still it's still just under probably around ten thousand dollars. Right. But we were lucky enough that we so we have donations from um, actually film companies when they come into our area. Yeah, um, just kind of to offset the parking lots they might take up or streets they might use when they're filming. Right. And so over the years we've been able to save that up, and that's what that's we were idea. able to put through to get this decoration for. So uh, the balls are gone now, correct? They are. Yes, they won't be back until next year now because we won't be able to really figure out a solution before Christmas this year. So Now, yeah. do the balls all come off separately and then they go together to be assembled every year? Is that how they work? Yes, they're all a separate ornament. So okay. some, if you wanted to, you could just buy one. Oh, uh, right. So, yeah. yeah, they don't all have to go together, but yeah, they're all separate. Maybe that's the answer, is putting them all over the park and just welding them to the ground. True, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> There's got to be something, right? Uh, were they damaged in any way because of all of this? Um, the remaining ones are fine. Yeah. Yeah, they're fine. But you've um, lost a green one. Yes, we've lost the green one, but the remaining ones are good. Uh, what do you think your chances are of finding the green ball? Um, 
I truly don't know. <laughs> I guess the, the the first thing to start doing is checking out uh, outside of every Tim Hortons location in town. <laughs> yeah, that might be our first stop. Um, oh, yeah, man. a quick little uh, tour of the downtown. We haven't seen it. so Keep your eye on eBay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody trying to unload a giant Christmas ball. Yeah. <laughs> uh, does it discourage you when you see stuff like this happen? Um, honestly, it's kind of... It's worked into our reality, really. We yeah. consider, um, we always consider how we can make sure something is not going to walk away in the park. And that's not just with Christmas. It's with any event we do downtown. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of just a reality. I mean, of course, it's a bit, it's always unfortunate that because so many people were having a great time and enjoying it. Yeah. It's unfortunate now that we can't continue to have it. But, of course, it won't stop our efforts in the future to keep growing our Christmas displays out there. You can see people saying that's a huge amount of cost for what this is, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and that is not money well spent. You've already described where it came from. That being said, I think what people may be missing in that point is, and again, going back to the City of Hamilton sign, that uh, you know tourists just flock to this sort of stuff and take pictures of it, and and then there's the there's the return, there's the publicity that you get from exactly. from people that post these these pictures of this or other things online. Exactly, for sure. It's and can you track that? Can you trace that? Have you have you noticed that? Wow, there's a lot of people taking pictures of this. For sure. Um, we've noticed on social media tons of tags yeah. um, with the Ferris wheel and with the Christmas balls. And, yeah, just visually seeing it happen as well. You see a lot more people, when there's something that big, right, that catches your eye, yeah. it's naturally going to draw you over. So is there a reward for the ball? We have not put out a reward, no. We don't have any kind of, um, we're just hoping, we filed the police report, so we'll go from there. Um, it would be nice to have, to know kind of what happened to it, but I mean, we've accepted that we're just going to have to find a solution for if, next year. If you were to drop it in Hamilton Harbor, would it float? <laughs> it would, actually. I would assume <laughs> it would. <laughs> so that's out. Yeah, so yeah, at least we'll see it. Have you checked the, the top level of the fountain? Is it in there? It is not, although, yeah, you find some interesting things in there sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, it's never dull. That's the one thing, that right? That's very all right. Uh, well, Susie, uh, anything you want to plug? Why don't you give the BIA a quick plug of what you guys got? You said the Ferris wheel's up to the 23rd. What else is going on down there over the course of the weeks? Yeah, absolutely. Ferris wheel's up until 8 p.m. on December 23rd, and you can all and the lights will be up as well. So enjoy the Christmas display that the city always does a great job in the park for us. Um, and stop by a lot of our businesses as well. are doing New Year's Eve um, festivities. So um, if you check out our website, you can check out our Instagram, um, and you'll find all theirs as well to see what's going on for them. But, yeah. And it's free to ride the Ferris wheel, correct? It is free, completely right. free, yep. Um, all right, great job, and that was a great addition this year. Uh, very cool. I guess that's coming you. back next year? Yes. Uh, yep. What about a permanent structure? Is that, you know, if it's permanent, then it's the novelty wears off? Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, haven't considered that yet. Susie Ozer has been with us, Operations Manager, Downtown Hamilton BIA. Susie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Merry Christmas. All right, Merry Christmas to you, too. Where's the dang ball? Who has stolen it? You know, what kind of Christmas is a kid? Never mind. Um, it'll be interesting if all of a sudden this appears like, uh, you know what we should do? We should check out Burlington. Check out their town square. Hey, that's our ball. Is that our ball? Maybe Grimsby's got it. Is Grimsby taking our ball? Stony Crick? Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, what the... And, and I remember seeing this when I when we were doing the Tree of Hope. And yes, people were standing around it taking pictures. And you think, well, what's, what's the sense in an expensive decoration like that? Uh, in in a place like Gore Park, and it's because people continually take pictures of it, and then it ends up so, around social media, and it's it's amazing, it's it's amazing PR, same as the Hamilton sign. Um, I, I rem- and I remember seeing this for the very first time when we uh, landed in Amsterdam, and they had one of those signs right out in front of the airport. And the first thing people did was get out of the airport and go take a picture of the sign. Boom, up it went onto social media. Same thing we're seeing with the Hamilton sign and uh, obviously the Christmas balls. Although, where there was once four, now there's only three. I guess we should be happy we have those. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked a lot uh, since December 1st, really, in regard to the situation with uh, the Huawei CFO being detained at Vancouver. Uh, she is now out on bail waiting uh, an extradition hearing. Uh, more on that, we're understanding, in the new year, February, March or so. Uh, But in retaliation to that, we saw two uh, Canadians be detained and then a third, uh, the third being uh, a a teacher, uh, I believe an English teacher from Alberta, who uh, was being held on a visa uh, situation. The other two, the first two, apparently being held due to uh, security issues or concerns for security uh, in relation to China. That being said, uh, we certainly know what has happened with the CFO uh, that was arrested here. Everything was quite transparent. Everybody knew exactly where she was. She was allowed legal representation. She was granted bail. She's now living in a in her expensive home in Vancouver right now. Well, she is awaiting uh, her, her trial. Uh, unfortunately, the same can't be said for the three Canadians that have been detained in uh, in China. And certainly of the first two, we, we don't know where they are. And uh, we're certainly finding out that one is being held in a scenario where the lights are on 24-7. Uh, this is all part of the process, I, I guess, over there. But today, an interesting article in the Toronto Star, hundreds of Canadians held by China raises the stakes for Trudeau's government. Around 200 Canadians are currently detained in China for a variety of reasons. And uh, even to say that three a week are arrested. To talk more about all of this and, and how this changes the situation uh, in regard to the Huawei story, we're going to bring in Michael Tobigan, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time today. We appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. So uh, once we start to hear how these people are being treated while being detained, how does that change the story, especially when the Huawei CFO is is held up in her home, her, her mansion in, in Vancouver? Uh, these people appear to be integ- being integrated uh, yeah. and with lights on 24-7. Yeah, I mean, obviously it does change the story. Um, it's interesting that it came out so close to Christmas, so I'm wondering how the federal government is going to handle it, <clears throat> because obviously there's going to want, you know, people are going to demand a response, and, you know, when you're sort of down to half-staff, it's always kind of hard to do that. Even I'll, even I'll give a pass to the liberal government on something like that. But it's a major, but it's a major, it's a, you know, it's a major revelation. It really is. I mean, I think most people would have probably privately thought that a few people, aside from the three people, you know, that have been detained as of late via the whole Huawei issue or controversy, I think people would have assumed that there might be one or two others, you know, in Can- you know, from Canada who might be detained for some reason, even if it's minor, and eventually they'd get out. I think it's shocking to see the number, you know, over a hundred and possibly much, much more than that. And it really shows that irrespective of the fact that Canada and China have tried to build a relationship with one another, especially during the days of Justin Trudeau's father, the late Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who really worked very hard to build a stronger relationship with China because he foresaw the possibility of political and economic relations with this country long before it became an economic superpower, which is happening right now. Well, you and I yesterday, and I, I still stand by it, it, said that it's very, very difficult to make a complete and total break with China. It's just too strong and too powerful and too influential in our daily life to do that. At the same time, when you have things like this popping out, and it directly affects you, in this case, being Canadians, you know, you can't sit back and say nothing. You have to be much firmer than probably you would have thought you would have to have been, let's say, 24 hours ago. And it definitely changes the narrative to the point that Canada and hopefully other Western nations are going to speak out immediately about something like this. Uh, you talked about how these economies, are, especially theirs with ours, is, is so interwound now. Uh, what if this had happened 20 or 30 years ago? That's a hard question. Um, it would have been easier, let's put it that way. Uh, China's economy has been growing pretty steadily, certainly since the mid-70s, 
And it's really ramped up, I would say, late 80s, early 90s. Are we too dependent on that? Well... I guess there's no choice. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, that's a really tough question to answer. Um, It's not like Canada is unique in this this instance, Scott. Mm -hmm. Most Western countries do that. I mean, obviously, they saw an advantage to working with China in various ways business opportunities, economic opportunities, and just the, the share of products, the import and export market. There's an enormous amount of products we have that are made, <clears throat> built, and sold you know, directly to countries like Canada from China, and we have them here. We have, you, know, you can probably go to any room in your house. You will have something from China. You know, yes, you could have it from other countries, Korea, India, etc., but China would definitely be one of them. And for that reason, it's very, very difficult to state that, you know, had it happened 20, 30 years ago, could we have made a stronger, uh, you know, a firmer stance? I think that's probably possible. But today, in this day and age, we still have to speak out. We still have to condemn the Chinese Communist government, and we still have to blast them for what they're doing, including this revelation that's come out today. But to say that we can completely break ties with them and just, you know, take a firm stance, whereas other countries in the world, as of right now, are not doing that, that would be very difficult to do. Uh, does China know how the CFO of Huawei is being treated? Do they know, do, do people who live in China know that this woman is not being in a cell with the lights on 24-7? She's held up in her large mansion. Well, this awaits trial. Yeah, well, I mean, look, let's put it this way. Does China know? Probably. I, I think that the Chinese government has probably got moles all over their various countries, including Canada, and I'm sure they probably have information being siphoned to them. I think that's probably fair to say. And that's not conspiratorial. Most countries do yeah. this in other countries. It's very, it's, very, uh, it's very common. But in terms of what the general populace knows, that's an interesting question. If you go to other topics that relate to China, especially on issues like security and surveillance, or even this discussion, and maybe you've talked about on your radio show, I don't know, of this social credit system that they're coming up with, where people are going to have social credit points either added or subtracted based on what they do publicly. You know, they could lose points, say, for things as simple as jaywalking, playing video games, drinking too much alcohol, not paying your taxes on time. And that could restrict you in terms of your, your travel, your ability to find work, etc. I don't know if a lot of people in China are fully aware of what the implications could be. And while some Chinese, so it's not some of the, you know, part of the Chinese community have spoken out against the social credit system, most of them seem to be fairly content and lax about it. And this is, an, unfortunately, a historical problem, not just with China, but with any country that's had a communist government. They basically become almost subservient in a way that that basically, you know, it's a big brother mentality that the government knows best. The government knows what it's doing. The government controls the news. The government controls our daily lives. So we'll just trust them to do the right thing, which is, you know, in a democratic country like Canada is complete and utter nonsense. So it's hard to say. I would think that obviously some people in China, especially people directly connected with the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, are aware of what's going on with Huawei. But the average person, if they're told about it, would probably shrug and not say very much because he or she probably doesn't, shrugs and doesn't say very much about other issues related to China, right. especially the controversial ones. You don't speak about anything, let alone this. Yeah, I mean, well, if, unless, you, you know, unless you believe that your life mm. you know, is going to be protected, your life will be in some jeopardy if you speak out against this government. If something like the social credit system can cost you points of doing that, imagine speaking out about something like Huawei. I mean, I don't think most people would take the risk. Uh, Huawei, obviously a crown jewel for them. Uh, do you think the citizenry is aware that the, uh, th- that the founder's uh, mm-hmm. daughter, that the CFO of this company, is being held in Canada? Would they be aware of that? Well, when you consider the... Considering history, she's pretty much royalty there? Yeah, yeah, but uh, there's two things. You're right. She is sort of seen as royalty. She's a very, from a very prominent, powerful family. So you would have to assume some people know. I, I, there's no question of that. But remember, a lot of news organizations, that includes TV, radio, print, are all heavily controlled by the communist apparatus. If they don't want to bring out information or discuss certain particulars about this case, well, guess what? They won't. We worry about freedom of the press here. There is no free press in China. There is no free press in a tyrannical society or a communist country or a totalitarian nation, whatever you wish to call them. 
China is not a free and open society. It is not a democracy, as we all know. For that reason, it's hard for me to say, and unfortunately I don't read Mandarin and I, you know, and I can't go through it, I don't know what people do or do not know in China about a lot of things, but if we use, say, the example of North Korea as kind of a juxtaposition, the North Koreans virtually know nothing about the outside world. They're only getting dribs and drabbles in recent years. China has not been quite that bad. I mean, obviously, it's so powerful that international news obviously makes it to, you know, state broadcasts and newspapers and magazines and so forth. But you have to assume that some of it never, you know, people just don't catch any wind of it whatsoever and are completely unaware and oblivious to what is happening. It may be the case here with Meng Wazoo from, um, <clears throat> pardon me, from Huawei, but I don't know for sure. <laughs> So where does this leave the Prime Minister's office? Obviously, it looks like we're sitting at three detainees now, two for security reasons, one for the the visa reason. Uh, Many have talked, uh, have asked why the the Prime Minister hasn't made a phone call or, or tried to connect in some way. Obviously, many have said you take different diplomatic channels in order to do that. Of course. That being said, with the information that's coming out now on the conditions in which these people are being held, and the fact that there could be the star reporting up to around 200, they're saying that this is actually happening to, how does this, how does the PMO's office, how does the PMO um, position this? How do they, as you say, going into the Christmas break? Tough. I mean, if the, if the tour star, Toronto Star report is correct, and let, let's say it is around 200, it means that whatever response you were playing the craft yesterday has to be immediately adjusted today. And again, as I was jokingly saying, they're, half, they're sort of on half staff right now. Whoever's around, and you know, obviously via Blackberry's iPhones, the whole world is open to us. They'll be able to communicate one way or the other. I would imagine that the Trudeau Liberal government or the Trudeau Liberals are coming up with something that's going to be much stronger and much sterner. Yes, it is true that obviously when it comes to foreign policy matters, you have to sort of walk on eggshells in certain ways in terms of dealing with a country, especially in terms of attacking them, especially when you have such a important role, in this case a major economic relationship with the Chinese. I mean, obviously, China, as I said to you yesterday, China doesn't care about criticism. They get attacked all the time. I think they laugh it off in private. They couldn't care less what people say about them because they have their own agenda, and they're working towards particular goals. And if the Western nations, you know, which is a society that they don't agree with and the type of government they completely oppose, if they're going to attack them, they really don't care one way or the other. But the Trudeau government still has to come out, I believe, with a very strong message, even though it is coming close to Christmas, and they have to basically put out, at least acknowledge what the Star Report has said, the potential that there could be upwards, as you say, of up to 200 people being held or detained for some reason in China, and basically point out that this is just unacceptable. Maybe uh, Trudeau is sort of working the phones right now, or some of his senior staffers like Gerald Butts, Katie Telford, and others, to try and create some sort of alliances with other Western nations who may face the same issue. That could be the UK, Germany, France, the United States, whomever. And to see if there's any way to kind of build a major alliance to go after the Chinese. Because if, if Canada, a middle power in a very tiny country, comes after China, sure, it'll be noticed, but it's not going to have a huge impact. If major world powers and other larger countries join Canada, in in basically criticizing the Chinese government for what they're doing and threatening certain things, which could include possibly sanctions or a reduction in terms of the amount of goods that they import from China, whatever, maybe that will have some small impact. It's hard to say, but that's the only way it can have any force or any power. It has to be Canada and others. If it's Canada alone, it's just it's not going to resonate with the Chinese communists. Uh, you talked about them flying by their own uh, in their own direction. They don't care what we think. Does China care if Huawei's 5G network or the backbone of it is <clears throat> banned in the West or by Western allies? Yeah, I think they would. I mean, again, I don't know if they'd start trembling in their boots, but because 5G is obviously the next level, this is, you know, the next level of broadband and other things that we're going to go through where our internet will be faster, we'll receive our email faster, our text messages faster. 
you know, each time you move up, we're currently at a 4G network, we're moving to 5G, and that'll just continue to rise. It matters a great deal to the country where it originates. In this case, Huawei Technologies is the leader in terms of the move to 5G or the shift to 5G. So, yes, the Chinese government will certainly look at it that way, and they'll be furious if <clears throat> Canada and other countries opt not to sort of buy into it, so to speak. I agree with you there, Scott. You're absolutely right. But would it be enough to cause them to change their policy or adjust their way of thinking or to sort of let Huawei technologies, which is clearly on their mind, I think it's now safe to say, to just let it drop because of what's happening here, or to allow the courts to make a decision about Meng Wazu and then go from that point on to have discussions with different countries and governments like Canada to see what can be done? Maybe. But at the same time, China basically has its own agenda. There will always be countries that will be willing to latch on to a 5G network. I think that's not a problem at all. So if Canada doesn't necessarily move as quickly, you know, that's one thing. But if other bigger nations also join them, that's quite another. And just as an interesting point, sometimes when I'm driving along in Toronto, I pass by a billboard, a very large one, with Huawei technology sitting right up top. It's not far from where I live. And it's interesting to sort of watch that based on what's been happening around here, the, the horror and, and the problems that we've had with Huawei but you can see that the influence that Huawei has in this country, not just from this one billboard, because there are others, but just based on the fact that people know and see the name, because this is a well-traveled road and a well-traveled route, it really shows that to sort of create a clean break between Canada and China, if that's what the Trudeau liberals ultimately opt for, which I doubt they will, will be very, very difficult to implement. Uh, Bell and TELUS warning of delays when it comes to 5G networks or higher costs if Ottawa joins peers in banning Huawei. Uh, is this a case of the money versus security? Well, I mean, I certainly agree that there is a security issue with Huawei, and that was revealed a long time ago by both the U.S. government and the Canadian government that I worked for, you know, Stephen Harper, the, the former prime minister, they were among two of others that, <clears throat> that spoke out against it and recognized that there could be a potential security threat because of the way China has obviously, shall we say, screwed around when it comes to surveillance issues and the fact that the Chinese cannot necessarily be trusted when it comes to surveillance or, or national security issues. So could it, you know, could, they, could it sort of change the parameters or our way of thinking of when we should move into a 5G network? And should we follow the lead of Bell and others to sort of try to hold back on it a little bit or readjust our way of thinking? Yes, I think that's certainly doable, and I certainly think that's possible. But then you have to consider consumer demand. The, you know, the Western world wants to move. They want faster information that, or, and or they want to receive their information quicker, and they want their broadband to really speed up. I mean, we don't have to go through all the frustrations Canadians feel from Hamilton to my city of Toronto and how bad it is. Um, I, I think that ultimately, overall, it'll be a question of whether people are willing to wait a little longer when it comes to 5G and hope that someone else develops something that is similar to what Huawei has come up with or better, or whether they're going to basically go along with it for now, see what happens in this court case and make a decision later. It's a tough strategy and it's not an easy one to make before Christmas, I'll tell you that much. Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media, syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times and batting twice for us today. Thank you, Michael, or this week. Much appreciated. Merry Christmas to you. This will be the last time we'll call you in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas to you and the year listeners. Take care, Scott. Thanks so much, Michael. You Michael betcha. Tobe has been with us and uh, helping us out today. A lot of people on holidays, understandably so. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Airport services have resumed at Gatwick in the UK. Police have identified persons of interest. How serious could this situation have become? And is it amazing to know that in today's day and age that a air airport such as Gatwick, one of the busiest in the world, can be brought to a standstill for like 36 hours? Because of a drone. Uh, Sterling Cripps is with us, Canadian Unmanned Incorporated, and is on the line now. Sterling, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yes, uh, good afternoon, Scott. What is Canadian Unmanned Incorporated? Well, what we are, we are a professional drone training company in which uh, we offer 
a two and a half day ground school in which we train operators, drone operators, of the rules and regulations by which you're bound to fly here in Canada. And we teach it to a, a high standard set by Transport Canada in terms with uh, the knowledge they want you, a drone operator, to know. So who would be taking this course? Would this be uh, weekend warriors or this is this industry, is this p- business people who are using them on a regular basis? What we're seeing in terms of uh, uh, course numbers and people are those uh, that are involved, uh, first responders, uh, mining companies, geomatic companies, surveyors, uh, environmental operators, people uh, working for the government and op- in environmental uh, capacities, uh, and, and a whole host of others that are using it for correct and proper uh, uh, airspace use with small drones. How big is this industry? It's growing. Uh, I see different numbers depending on who you're looking at uh, or what you're reading, but it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry right across the world. And uh, here in Canada, it, it's a bit smaller, of course, due to our scale, but uh, it is growing. Technology is there, and the operational requirements for flying these uh, small uh, UAVs is, uh, is on the rise. Uh, so are you surprised what happened yesterday at Gatwick? Well, I, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but it was just more of a case of uh, things like this do happen with the advent of this technology and uh, the uh, um, mischief you can get up with, get up to with them. And it is very disappointed and, and mostly concerning, too, that it shows just how vulnerable we all are, not only in the UK, but around the world, where this type of activity can bring a, a major airport or even a small airport to a standstill. So why the standstill? Why is this a security threat? Why is, why is this a safety issue? Well, drones have mass. They're made of glass, steel, plastic, and uh, aircraft running into these things at high speeds uh, can be damaged. Uh, if they get ingested into an engine or go through a propeller, they can shut that engine down, which is uh, not a good thing to happen at, at low altitude or any altitude for that matter. But uh, drones uh, present that problem and a risk to aviation. And Transport Canada here in Canada is doing everything that they can to uh, mitigate those risks and to attempt to make a, a safe environment for us all who, who operate and fly in these uh, environments. So how do you combat something like this? Uh, Gatwick, the UK is um, uh, being criticized because they say they were warned about this stuff but didn't really take any precaution for it. How do you combat this? Well, first of all, I think it's through socialization of the industry. People have to know what is right and wrong when it comes to flying small drones. Uh, here in Canada, we have a host of rules and regulations by which legal good operators fly and abide by. However, there are those that, you know, get them for Christmas or birthdays or just go to the technical tech store, purchase a drone and go out and fly it. They don't even give any consideration. So the first part of that answer is I think we have to make everybody aware that flying drones is a serious business and you can only fly them in so many areas. And I guess the second answer for that would be to use uh, counter drone measures, right? Counter drone measures in certain locations, but uh, they're difficult to obtain, set up and man and manage over, you know, an extended period of time. Is that anti-drone technology and how would that work? Well, there's all kinds of it. Uh, um, there's different methods and different main means of uh, bringing down a drone. But the problem is the collateral damage, which uh, could possibly be a part of that. If you're going to bring a drone down, what's, uh, what's below it, what's beneath it? Are you going to make it worse than it right. already is? So there is lots of material and a lot of equipment out there for that. But uh, it, it, it's, uh, it would be site-specific depending on the nature of the work, I suppose. Is it possible to make a airport or the area around it a, a drone-free zone? I mean, can you do that technologically? Uh, technically, yes. I, if you had the ability and the, uh, the money to set up a, an anti-drone uh, curtain, if you will. Does that like jam that, the device going from penetrating that curtain per se? How does this work? Yeah, there's all kinds of devices from jamming to uh, interfering with their flight, uh, casting nets, that sort of thing happens. And uh, What about sending like, other drones out after the drone? There's a, that, that's another uh, possibility as well, but here you start complicating the airspace when you put in a you got a, a drone drone you, you got yeah, a drone so. fight going on below you and you're trying to there, land a plane. You know, Scott, there's no easy answer to this, but uh, I know Transport Canada has through uh, 
through their networks, um, you know, created a no drone flying zone around all our airports in Canada. But it's whether or not people understand that or aware of the rules or where they even live. In fact, uh, you know, how, how, how many of your listeners know where the nearest aerodrome is to them and what airspace that may be. So this is all about education. What does this, I mean, we've got limited information here with what happened in Gatwick. What does your gut tell you here? I mean, is this like people just goofing off and flying into airspace? And you got to think that, you know, even a person who knows nothing about uh, the legalities of a drone, that if you're going to fly into an airport, you're going to cause some problems. Well, yeah, this is malicious. Somebody had an idea that they were going to interfere with airspace and they purposely flew into that area. There have been mishaps where, you know, amateur operators will yeah, accidentally fly into airspace and not know about it, but they don't linger and they don't, uh, they don't hang around to create problems. And certainly anyone who's a commercial operator uh, knows uh, what the rules are and the risks, and uh, they, they would stay right away. On the, on the other hand, too, they may have business at the airport, but they would be working with air traffic control services and it would be coordinated and, uh, you know, it would, not, it would be on a non-interference basis. But this is totally malicious, and uh, you can see the problem that it's created. How was this threat discovered? Is this all of a sudden, uh, would they notice, would they pick this up on radar? Would all of a sudden a pilot say, hey, there's something flying around out here? How would they even discover this? In most cases, it's visual. Uh, What someone may observe from the ground or perhaps the tower or even from the cockpit. And uh, here in Canada, we have reports just about every day of pilots uh, reporting drones uh, in airspace where they shouldn't be. And think of it this way. I'm also a commercial pilot. If you see a drone zipping by the cockpit, then that thing's pretty close. And uh, and that has to scare the bejeebers out of you when you're not expecting that. Well, you know, there's things like birds, too. I mean, yeah. everything, you know, can be alarming when uh, they, they are, they're in close proximity to your aircraft. But certainly to identify a drone, that's very uncomfortable. It gets reported. And uh, the problem is it's difficult to enforce. It's difficult to track these things down. And it's only through public awareness and people knowing uh, uh, what's allowed and what's not allowed will we uh, get the upper hand on this. Would would the tower uh, have these, would these show up on radar? Would they know they're in the vicinity or would they just see them flying around? Would they they actually be picked up on a radar? Small drones are, are very difficult to pick up on radar. They don't uh, provide a, a return or a signature as such. Uh, where you, if you took a small drone about in the two kilogram size, about fourteen inch uh, wingspan, uh, you lose you, you lose sight of these things around five hundred meters. So beyond five hundred meters, they're almost impossible to see. And that, that also depends on background scatter, lighting conditions, that sort of thing. At night, you'll see them if their lights are on very, very clearly from great distances. But during the day, Scott, they're very difficult to see. Uh, for, for for something to do this much uh, damage to, uh, I shouldn't say damage, but certainly disrupt the, the airport at Gatwick, would it have to be a certain size? Would it have to be a certain um, a level of drone, a certain cost in order to do that? Is, is this somebody who knows what they're doing? I mean, what can we identify from the limited information we have? Well, what I would say is somebody who's flying a small drone in that area, they knew what they were doing. Uh, these small drones are inexpensive. Uh, you're looking at $1,000 or less for something that can create a lot of havoc. Uh, they're usually um, you know, you know, inexpensive, cheap, small drones that can be flown you know, up to three, four kilometers away. And they're small. Uh, two kilograms or less uh, is probably, I think, what we're looking at uh, over Gatwick. I, I haven't seen the picture of a drone there, despite they have shown a few uh, uh, shots from a distance, but they look fairly small to me, you know, about the size of, uh, you know, a laptop, that sort of thing. Uh, and there, there's conflicting stories here whether there was one or more than one involved in this. Yes. I've it appears there was well. more than one. Well, it could be the same one, just returning. Yeah. They, these things have a life, life expectancy in the air, anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes with the latest technology, depending on uh, outside conditions, wind speed, and that sort of thing. But, you know, returning them, putting a new battery, and then sending them out uh, could just a sense be the same, uh, the same, uh, same drone coming back and forth. I'm not sure where they were with reporting multiple drones, if there were several in the area at right. the same time. But it only takes one to do a lot of damage. 
Uh, that being said, could if it has to be replaced, recharged, what have you, uh, can you follow a drone back to its originate, originating point? Sure you can if you can see it. If you have the ability to uh, track it and have somebody watch it, but consider yourself in your own neighborhood, in your own backyard. A drone flies over, and then, then it's gone. It's gone, it's yeah. very difficult. Like a bird. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. And, and they, you know, if they're organized and they're planning uh, to do this, uh, mischievously, then they they may come in from another direction in which uh, they're not even located. Hmm. So uh, circle around. So, uh, what about if there? You know, it's there. It's flying around. Uh, it's creating havoc at a place like an airport. Is there any way that enforcement, law enforcement, or officials can trace the signal? Uh, that's. Uh, or is there just so many signals out there? They'd be following everything. Well, it's it's just one one. Uh, it's usually a two point four gigahertz in which these things are operating, and to sort of pinpoint where the uh, actual uh, controller is might be a little bit difficult. But there are ways that they could possibly track the system back to where it came from if they have the countermeasures in place to uh, do that sort of tracking. But these things are quite small, made of plastic, a little bit of aluminum and glass, and they don't always uh, have a great signature. But I know there is there is equipment uh, countermeasures that can can follow these things back. But it's whether or not they're available and whether or not they're manned. So uh, be set up in advance. Some industrial areas have guard dogs. Could we see guard drones? Could we see a drone that's stationed at an airport and um, it senses other ones? Uh, that's that's quite possible. Uh, I'm not aware of anything like that, but I wouldn't put it past this technology sector where that does already exist. Uh, I know there are drones being flown in Edmonton that uh, resemble birds at the international airport here, and they uh, they scare other birds away. That looks like a hawk, and it, it flaps around, and it's controlled, and they fly it on the aerodrome for uh, bird management and control. So uh, do we have these same problems here? How often does this happen? Uh, nothing on the scale that we've seen in Gatwick where there's been an intent. Uh, but there are people, and there have been reported incidences. I, I Personally, I think we're, there's probably between three and 500 airspace violations a year here in Canada, uh, and quite close to one a day in which a pilot sees or sights a drone. And it's quite seasonal, too. The warmer the weather, the more... more uh, apt uh, an operator will be outside but they purposely fly around aerodromes they want to get pictures of aircraft coming and going and uh and even even this may there was a report of a, a drone sighted at fourteen thousand feet just east of quebec city so these are reported in the canadian aviation uh, daily occurrence reports or the cadors and it's a transport canada product that is available online and it uh, gives the uh, reportable incidents that happen in aviation on a daily basis. That could be anything from a, a coyote on the runway to, you know, an airplane taxing down the wrong taxiway. That sort of stuff gets reported. And drones, uh, sight, drone sightings are, are part of that. I was watching a report on the news last night, and they were showing how these can impact planes. And, you know, if you get one that's big enough, it can actually pierce the skin of a wing of a jet airliner. We saw that last week, didn't we, in yeah. Mexico, uh, that, uh, that uh, 737 that took one right on the radome. You can see that it punched right through the aircraft's skin and into the radome. It could have been more of a disaster had it been five feet higher and hit the, uh, hit the glass in the cockpit. So who knows whether it would have gone through or just uh, ballistically shattered the glass and created, a, created an in-flight emergency. So you put it into an engine, it'll stall an engine. So you're down to one engine if it's two. So... People have to be very careful, and the best way to uh, be careful is through education and understanding where and where you cannot fly a, a UAV. So, and I understand that in Canada, our regulations are a little stiffer than they are over there. Apparently here it's like 5K from an airport, there it's 1, is that accurate? Uh, I was looking at that as well. I know here in Canada, if you want to fly for recreational purposes, we have to stay, uh, what is it? I think it's 5.6 kilometers away from an aerodrome. 1.9 kilometers away from a uh, helipad used by helicopters, such as uh, hospital landing pads, that sort of thing. And uh, I believe they're talking one kilometer away from the perimeter of the airport. Most most major airports usually have a perimeter 
an airspace perimeter of either five nautical miles or seven nautical miles, uh, which translates to about nine kilometers in the five. Uh, how how is Gatwick going to recover from this? Because if it if it's happened once, it could happen again. Well, hopefully through uh, socializing the uh, the uh, severity and the seriousness of this activity. Uh, will bring uh, the public to an awareness where if anyone is uh, aware of anybody doing this type of illegal activity, hopefully they'll report it. But as as per individual airport, and there are thousands of airports around the world that are busy of the major of a major nature, um, they might have to start rethinking or addressing this new threat. And it's it's uh, it's unfortunate, but that's the world we're living in now. There's always something new that comes along that can be problematic and this certainly is one you know we've heard the stories with the laser pens and such and and, and people shining them into cockpits uh, cockpits and uh, cockpits and such and then obviously drones which have been around for a while but the first time we've seen something of this magnitude that's closed down a major airport for uh for for 36 hours I mean, you even yeah. look from uh, from a criminal. I mean, let's just assume this is just someone out hacking around and 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 as you said, maliciously did something th- that caused th- this sort of result. But I mean, if if organizations, any you know, whatever, even if it's a terror organization or a terror situation, I mean, here's a way to literally cost a center uh, who knows how much money by shutting down such a major airport for a, for over a day. Well, this is true. And uh, the fact that it's been so widely publicized and uh, uh, you know featured around the world in newscasts, this is just a new reality which we have to face. Laser strikes are a daily occurrence here in Canada, and Canadian airspace activities represents a small fraction of uh, the other air traffic around the world. So if it's happening here, it's happening elsewhere, and uh, we just have to be prepared move forward and uh, take a look at this uh, new threat. And uh, I'm sure the airport authorities will be able to uh, to uh, come up with uh, ways of countering this. Uh, a- any idea what the penalty would be for something like this? I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's uh, uh, regulations, as you mentioned, in regard to flying drones. But what happens if that results in shutting down a major airport well, for a well, day? Something and a half? like this in Canada would result in uh, tens of thousands of dollars in fines and certainly jail time. Yeah, incarcerated for this. It's uh, it's uh, almost an act of terrorism, if you will, when you're starting to do this type of uh, malicious behavior in around air domes. You're threatening everybody that's uh, in this in the area in the air, not only in the air but also on the ground too. Sterling Cripps has been with us. Canadian Unmanned Incorporated Airport Services have resumed at Gatwick, and police have identified persons of interest in regard to the flying of drones in the area, which closed the airport for 36 hours. Sterling, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks very much, Scott. Merry Christmas to you and your listeners. And Merry Christmas to you. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.